Well, I want to begin with uh, a controversial statement. Um, I think, deep down, many Christians, maybe many of us this evening, we basically believe in the prosperity gospel. Um, If you think I'm crazy for saying that at the beginning of a sermon, uh, you're not all wanting to run away from me, Uh, but but listen to this question, listen to this uh, sentence, and just think how you would finish it. If a Christian is faithful, then their kids will turn out okay. If a Christian is faithful, how do we finish this sentence? If they're married, then their marriage will be easy. That's so often how we think, isn't it? If, if a Christian is faithful, then their job, their career will be really fulfilling. I think, you and I, I think that's often the way we think. Now, there's a sense in which being a Christian can mean that work and relationships go well and we live life according to God's design. Often we experience uh, His blessing. And yet God doesn't promise that, does He? And what that means is that we're often shocked when suffering comes, when there are difficulties, when there's frustrations. And the flip side of that is that when my life is going well, when my life is uh, going better for me than you, well, it's probably because I'm more faithful, I'm more godly. That's so often how we can think. We might not verbalize these things, and yet I think deep down we can think like that. And one of the things these verses, which uh, Chris read to us, one of the things these verses do is destroy that idea. They destroy that idea. They destroy that idol. Because in this section, Moses obeys God, and he does everything he's told, and everything falls apart. In fact, as the the passage progresses, um, it just goes from bad to worse. And then to make it even worse, it ends with a genealogy. What do we see in this passage? I think there's three things. I've got three points this evening. The first, uh, like Andy this morning, the first is the longest. Here's the first point. God's reign is always contested. God's reign is always contested. Now, before we jump into uh, chapter 5, I want to say just one thing about the genealogy. I'm not going to say a lot about it. And I thought I'd speak about the genealogy at the beginning you know, when everyone's uh, at their freshest. I I know how it goes. I'm not going to speak about a genealogy right at the end of a sermon. Okay, if you look at the genealogy, which Chris read so well, um, it's not just a big list of names. Um, It is the genealogy, as the heading uh, puts it, of Moses and Aaron. Um, Different tribes are mentioned. Uh, Not all 12 tribes are mentioned. Only three tribes And really the focus is on uh, one tribe. Uh, So Reuben's mentioned in verse 14, and then Simeon and some of his family in verse 15. But then from verse 16 onwards, if you look at the verses, if you were to follow them through and kind of map them out, you would see that all of the focus really is on the tribe of Levi. Three of his sons are named in verse 16. And then their family tree is expanded on in the verses that follow. 
Um, so why all the focus on Levi? Well, they were the tribe who would go to go on to serve in the tabernacle. They were concerned about uh, worship. That was the goal of Exodus. And I think what this genealogy is doing is it's showing us that Aaron really belongs to that family. And it's confirming uh, his identity. And you see presidents, they, they pick their running mates. Uh, they sometimes choose people no one has heard of, don't they? But this genealogy, it's saying that Aaron is legitimate. Aaron belongs to the tribe of Levi, the tribe associated with worship, who will go on to be that. Aaron is legitimate. He's the right kind of person uh, to be at Moses' side. That's really all I want to say about the, the genealogy. If you have questions about it, uh, come and speak to me at the end. But let's look back at chapter 5. Uh, remember how we ended last week. We, we ended on, on something of a high. Moses and Aaron came to God's people and they listened. But this week it starts very differently. God's reign, God's rule is contested. And as we look at these verses, notice the trigger in verse 1. Moses and Aaron, they come to Pharaoh and they say the reason God wants his people free is so that they might hold a feast in the wilderness, so that they might worship. See the same thing again when they speak in verse 3. Let us go a three days journey that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And notice Pharaoh's response to the first request, verse 2. He, he doesn't just say no, does he? He asks a question. It's not a question he wants answered. He says this, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should let Israel go? Who is the Lord? Now, before we think about what um, Pharaoh meant in asking that question, maybe you can actually see, if you look at the text really carefully, that Moses and Aaron, in a sense, they don't really quite fully know the answer to that question themselves. Look what they add in verse 3. Can you see it? They say that if God's people aren't allowed to go and worship, God will strike them down. But God hadn't said that. Now, maybe they said that as part of their speech, kind of for effect, or, or maybe their view of God is actually different to what God had actually revealed. They, they thought of God as harsher, more strict. Not only that, the way they approach Pharaoh is a bit different to what God had actually said. And they go without the elders. And again, there's a bit of a warning here. When God wants us to do something, how we do it, matters to him. And yet, look at the response. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Now, one of the things we need to realize is that Pharaoh thought of himself as a god. And if you go to the British Museum in London, and we're going to go on holiday to London soon, and I'm going to do what I do to my family. I'm going to drag them around places like the British Museum and if you go there, you can sense and see something of the majesty and the glory of the Egyptians. And we see this as the story progresses. Look how Moses and Aaron introduce what God has to say in verse 1. Um, can you see the, the four words? Thus says the Lord. 
Now look at verse 10, jump down to verse 10. And notice how Pharaoh's henchmen, notice how they begin. Thus says Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, thus says Pharaoh. What we have in this chapter is a kind of clash. It's a clash between the true God and a wannabe God. And that clash is the reason for all of the opposition that God's people face. Conflict began in Genesis 3, and it's a conflict that will never stop right to the end of history. If you're a new Christian, if you're a student, you need to know that. God's rule, God's reign in this world is always contested. Now look how that happens. Look at the first thing Pharaoh does he, in verse 4. He questions them. He, he challenges their motives. Later on, they're accused of being idle. And this kind of thing often happens to God's people. You, you want to start an SU group. Yes, I, I, I know there used to be one in this school, but that was before my time, says the head teacher. And anyway, what kind of things are you, you going to be speaking about in these meetings? Questioning. But that's not the only thing, isn't it? The, the same, that same day, verse 6, he makes their lives more difficult. Instead of being given straw, they're, they're to gather it. They're going to be scattered as a result. The work gets harder, and yet they're accused of being idle. But what I want you to notice is the repetition. Maybe you pick this up as uh, Chris read to it. In verses 7 to 9, um, all that I've just said is laid out. And then in verses 10 to 14, it's, it's all repeated again as the, as the taskmasters and the foremen go to the people. And then in verses 15 to 19, it is all repeated again and again as they go to Pharaoh, as they talk about it. And so by the time you get to the end of verse 19, I think we're meant to say, okay, I get it. God's people had to make bricks without straw. It's almost tedious. It's almost repetitive. 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 Tedious. See, between verse 9 and 18, we don't actually learn anything new. Moses could have jumped from verse 9 to 19 when he wrote all this up. But I think the tedium, the tedium is the point. See, life gets harder for God's people, and it's all because Moses and Aaron have obeyed God's call. And yet, even through all of this, I think there's a silver lining here. All of these things, all of this, this response, the way Pharaoh acted, all of this was anticipated. See, what did God tell Moses back in chapter 3? God told Moses to ask for a kind of three-day mini-exodus. But then God said this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. He won't let you go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. God knew that future. God anticipated that response. 
Some of you tonight have, have gone through terrible things in your life. Some of you are, are wading through misery in your life. Well, imagine if God had been caught off guard by those things. If God was like you, if God was, was shocked when, when suffering came to his people, well, God isn't. God is not some little deity. God's knowledge is completely comprehensive. God knows everything. That, that doesn't answer all our questions, does it, about our suffering? And yet it reminds us that he's in charge. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room? I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. God's rule is it's always contested. There's a second thing here. God's people are often perplexed. God's people are often perplexed. In verse 19 and following, lots of people are upset. The foreman of Israel uh, is upset, so is Moses. Look at the language the foreman used in verse 21. They come to Moses and Aaron and they say, may God judge you for this. Um, you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. You've put a sword in their hands to kill us. Now, kids, uh, when was the last time, you don't, don't shout out, okay, don't, don't tell me, when was the last time you smelt something that just, it, it, it was very stinky? When was the last time? You can come and tell me afterwards. Later in Exodus, other things will be described as stinking, dead fish, frogs, manna. And God's people have done what Moses told them, and their lives have just got harder, and they're angry about it. And God's people often feel like this. God's people often feel they've been treated this way. So I don't know, maybe it's at work, maybe you've just been, you're the kind of person who's been repeatedly sidelined for a promotion or something like that. Everyone else knows the reason that you've not got that job you're more than qualified to get. Maybe at university or school, I, I, I don't know, a lecturer or a teacher, they, they just know you're a Christian, they know you go to the CU, and so they just assume, you know, they're, that person over there is just a bit dim. They don't call on you when you've got a question. I think to be a Christian is to often have experiences like that, isn't it? It's to, to live in a culture that speaks so often about the dangers of judging and yet to feel very judged. Now look at Moses' response in verse 22. I think he does one thing right and I think he does two things wrong. The thing he does right is turn to the Lord. He pours out his heart to God about the situation he's in. And turning to God like that is totally the right instinct, isn't it? Especially when we've been wronged or blamed for something. God can handle that. God wants us to be honest before him, even though he knows all these things already. And yet I think he does two things wrong here. He questions God's character. Can you see that? Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? And he forgets that Pharaoh is the one who has done these things. And yet he knows it's Pharaoh's fault, doesn't he? Look what he talks about in verse 27. His evil, Pharaoh's evil. 
So he really, really questions God's character, and he gives in to a kind of total despair. Why did you ever send me? He's like Elijah, isn't he, in uh, 1 Kings 19. He asks that question, even though things have happened just as God said they would. And you and I are just like this so often, aren't we? Jesus tells us that following him is difficult, and yet we get surprised when it is, don't we? But what does Peter say in his first letter? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange, something odd were happening to you, don't be surprised. Don't think when you suffer as a Christian that you've, you know, maybe done something wrong. We often think that way, don't we? Don't think, you know, if only I'd been a better witness, uh, everything would be easier. I wouldn't face rejection. Don't expect the world's applause. No, remember what Jesus says. In this world, you will have trouble. To be a Christian is to be someone who's troubled, We often say that, don't we, about people who say, oh, he or she, they're a troubled person. Well, Christians are troubled people. And I think, kids, I think this is really important for you to understand. You're growing up uh, at a time, I think the grown-ups in here would agree, that it's, it's difficult to be a Christian. It's probably going to be harder for you than it was for some of us. Uh, there'll probably be times, maybe it's happened already, when you're called names for following Jesus. Don't be afraid of that. Don't, don't forget that Jesus is the King. Don't forget that He loves you. Don't forget that He's coming back. That's what Peter actually says in the next verse of his letter from the, the passage I quoted. He says, don't be surprised, but rejoice. Rejoice that you share in Christ's sufferings. And remember, Jesus is coming back. There's a really wonderful old hymn, we're not going to uh, sing it at the end, but maybe we can have it sometime, that, that captures some of this. Um, I know one person in St. Peter's who's got this hymn on their wall uh, where they work, and it's called Workman of God. And I want you to just listen to this verse. The first word, because it's an old hymn, the first word is an old word that means three times. Okay, so here it is, it's the word thrice. Okay, listen to this. Thrice blessed is he to whom is given the instinct that can tell. Tell what? That God is on the field when he is most invisible. Thrice blessed is he to whom is given the instinct that can tell. That God is on the field when he is most invisible. And what that verse is saying is that even when it seems like God is gone, God is there. God is still at work. And that hymn writer is saying, if you understand that, you're blessed. You're thrice blessed. You may feel very perplexed. And yet God is still ordering everything according to his plans. And that's what we see in our final point. God's reign is always contested. God's people are often perplexed, and yet there's a last thing. God's plans, final point, God's plans cannot be stopped. God's plans cannot be stopped. 
See, look at verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will, he will drive them out of his hand. And someone has said that that little word now in verse 1, they've said it's like the, the hinge in the whole of the Exodus. Uh, in that little word, what do we see? We see, well, Aslan is on the move. And God wants, he wants Moses to know that everything is about to change. And you can see that if you look at verses 2 to 8. God is the one who speaks, and God is the one God speaks about. Can you see on four occasions in verses 2 to 8, what does he say? He says, I am the Lord. Verse 2, verse 6, verse 7. Verse 8, I am the Lord. Lord is an exclusive word. Did you know that? Only one person can be Lord. And God is saying it's not Pharaoh. Can you see the four things God says he's done in the past? He says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, verse 2. I established my covenant with them, verse 4. I have heard the groaning of my people, verse 5. I have remembered my covenant. Now, some people get a little bit troubled by uh, the second half of verse 3. If you look at that, it seems to kind of imply that God hadn't maybe revealed himself as the covenant God when he had um, in the past. From what I've read, the, the best way to understand that is to focus on the word known. And it's to recognize that the Bible is a kind of unfolding revelation. As God's people got to know him better, the relationship they had with him, it deepened in a sense. That's true, isn't it? Of all relationships. God is saying, Moses, you know my name. Moses, you know I'm committed to my people. Moses, you know what I've done. And this is how you and I are to think and live, isn't it? This is what we did this morning as we celebrated the Lord's Supper. We looked back. And as we did that, we remembered what Jesus had done for us. We, uh, our faith was strengthened, wasn't it? And yet we don't just look back, do we? In these verses, God holds out the future to Moses. Look at the I wills. You might want to underline these. There's seven of them. I will bring you, up, you out, verse 6. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people, verse 7. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land, verse 8. I will give it to you for a possession. All of the weight in verses 2 to 8 is on what God is going to do. And just think about how all of this is being communicated seven times, seven things, seven pledges. God could have said it all once, couldn't he? Instead, he uses seven. He uses the number of perfection in Scripture. God doesn't just say to Moses, you know, come on, Moses. Just believe, Moses. No, the God we meet in Scripture is a God who maximizes reassurance to his people. Let me say it seven times. That's how he communicates. Just think who he says it to. He gives all these pledges. He gives them to a man who is in real distress. You know, Moses isn't told all this when he's full of confidence. 
You see, look, just look at the end of, verse, of chapter 5. He has, since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. God, you've not done what you said you would do. And then God comes in and just says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Moses hears these words when he's despairing. I think that teaches us something about God, doesn't it? God has compassion on his people. God knows our faith is often very weak, isn't it? But God has pledged himself to us. Look at this central pledge. It's in verse 7. I will take you to be my people. Tonight, if you're a Christian, God says to you, he says of you, you're mine. You're mine. He's mine. She is mine. We belong to him, and he belongs to us. And the problem in our culture is our culture is constantly telling us to define ourselves, to be true to ourselves, to find ourselves, and it's making us all miserable, isn't it? But what is my only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own. That I belong to Jesus. I am not my own. That is the path to freedom. And yet look at verse 9. Moses said all this to the people of Israel, but they did not listen because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. I think there's a bit of a takeaway here. I think sometimes we need to uh, be honest and say that really good, really true, orthodox theology, it's not always quite enough for people, is it, sometimes? Sometimes real believers, they just they can't see what's true. They've got a broken spirit. Life has been brutal. And sometimes they get to their deathbeds, and real believers, they die full of pain, and full of questions. Sometimes their minds have gone, and sometimes their bodies are totally broken. And yet, even when that happens, Jesus is still holding on to them, isn't he? People like that have still got a Redeemer. Seven things. Seven things God says he's going to do. And so tonight, friends, just think about what has happened since the Exodus. Think of seven things God has promised and done. God has promised he's established his kingdom, all the kings we read about in the Bible in the Old Testament, that's number one. God has sent his people into exile, that's number two. God has said that he would bring those people back from exile, that's number three. God has said he would send his son, number four. God has raised his son, number five. God has sent his spirit, number six. God has grown his church, number seven. There's one thing left, isn't there? One more thing that God's going to do. He's done all the other things, and so you can trust him that he's going to do the final thing, the return of his son. Have you forgotten it? Things are going to get worse for God's people, aren't they? And yet one day, in in the twinkling of an eye, everything is going to change. God's rule is always contested. God's people are often perplexed, but God's plans cannot be stopped. And so tonight, friends, remember the end of the story. Remember the last chapter. Then I saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, new Jerusalem, 
and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Luke. And what I'm about to read, it's exactly what we see in this chapter in chapter 6. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. Well, amen. Let's pray.